Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At this point, most shows are winding down. Roy is just getting started. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Saturday edition of The Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ahead this hour, Beauties and the Beast with Catherine Swift and Linda Leatherdale. Michelle Simpson not with us today. We're going to talk about the interest rates going up. It affects variable rate mortgages, and it'll particularly hit people who've been using their equity in their homes as a cash machine. We'll talk about the Alberta transfer payments information from the Fraser Institute, electric cars... And the United States assuring Canada that the new NAFTA will be a win-win-win. Now, you know, on this program, for the last number of months, we have specifically and directly talked about the opioid issue. I won't call it a crisis. It is for patients. But it's an issue that has to be dealt with. And there's less than the truth being told by governments, And there's less than the truth being told by medical bodies. When it comes to patients, chronic pain patients or chronic agony patients, or require opioid medication for a quality of life that they have had sometimes in excess of 10 years. Because their doctors, in consultation with the patients, decided that opioids was the way to go. The way for these people, human beings, good people, to have some quality of life and not just lie on their beds and not be able to move, or as an increasing number of patients have told me, thinking about suicide. I also heard from a physician that he's been told by other physicians who treat chronic pain patients that there's an increase in the numbers of suicides among chronic pain patients. Why? Well, that's going to be studied. I can leap to an immediate conclusion. You've heard patients, you've heard doctors, you've heard the Federal Minister of Health, who I don't think enjoyed the interview that she did with me particularly, because she didn't have the answers, but she kept saying that my questions were, to quote Minister Philpott, fantastic. Hilary Morden is a PhD candidate in criminology at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. She's a business entrepreneur and a mother, and her husband is a city councillor in uh, whereabouts in BC, Mike? Um, I'm, I'm former, actually. Former city councillor. Yeah. What, what, what community? Yeah, Maple Ridge, British Columbia. Maple Ridge, yeah. I, w- I had it written down, and then you know what happens. Sometimes your mind goes blank. Uh, Hilary Morden is also a chronic pain patient who a year ago received a letter from her physician informing her she would no longer be allowed to receive her pain medication. Ms. Morden decided that was not going to be the case and she was going to fight back. Hilary, it's good to talk to you on the air. Thank you for having me. We've talked a fair bit off the air, you and I, and it's great yeah. to have Mike with us as well. Let's, let's start at the beginning. Would you tell us, please, about what your illness is, the background on it, and... What sort of consultation, what sort of process took place that found you on opioid medication after consultations with your doctor? What happened? 
Okay, well, I was 36 years old and very healthy, very active mother. I ran businesses and I raised my kids and I taught music. And one morning I woke up and I was really, really sick. And for the next two years, I was in excruciating pain. I saw more than a dozen physicians, five specialists. During that time, I lost 30 pounds. I was down to 105 pounds. My hair was falling out. Sorry, it's hard to go through this. And um, my skin was gray, and they, all the doctors who saw me knew that I was really sick, knew that I was, in fact, dying from the pain. And um, I finally was diagnosed with an ulcerative form of interstitial cystitis. And um, they knew it was a very painful condition. They knew it probably wouldn't kill me in the short term, but still they weren't treating me for it. And I was desperate. Um, I had had to go, go in for a bladder dilatation, and the specialist tore my bladder when he did that. And um, it was at that point, two years into my illness, that I decided it was going to kill myself. And so I arranged for my family to go to a hockey game, and I rented a hotel room and sought out an illegal gun so that I could kill myself and not do it at home. And in a final desperate bid for help, I went back to the old doctor who had cared for me when my children were born, and she put me on a very low dose of morphine. And so for the first time in two years, I actually slept for four hours. I'd been living my life in 20-minute periods because the pain was so bad. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't work. I couldn't sleep. And... Um, for the next 10 years, I was a science experiment. I was in experimental studies for uh, new medications in the United States, Germany, and Canada. They tried um, everything to try and control the pain. I did acupuncture, Reiki, massage therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, TENS therapy, biofeedback, positive thinking, prayer, support groups, counseling, everything. Um, and again, I was had gotten to the point where I, it was untenable. I couldn't live like that. And I went into a walk-in clinic, and the doctor there uh, took me on as a permanent patient, and the two of us worked together to find the right combination of narcotics to control my pain and give me my life back. And I was put on six Percocet a day and four to five 20 milligram Oxycontin. And since that time, which was 12 years ago, I went back to university and I got two honors degrees in psychology and English. I became a mother to my children again. Um, in fact, was healthy enough to take in an extra child as a foster child. I became a wife to my husband again. Um, I earned a number of federal scholarships, provincial scholarships, uh, writing awards, grants, and then I went on and I did my MA, and then I went on to my PhD in organized crime, where I interviewed just under 100 active organized crime members who were not incarcerated. They were what we call in the wild. And as a result of that, I've published a dozen papers. I've contributed to three textbooks. I've spoken all over North America um, on organized crime to policing groups, to at academic conferences. Um, I took on a job teaching as a sessional lecturer at SFU right. and am currently in negotiations to write a book. So you really sound like a dysfunctional addict. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't start becoming dysfunctional until 2015 when um, my doctor came in and said that the college had reviewed my file and they wanted him to take me off my narcotics. And so from about the middle of 2015 till I got that letter in 2016, my monthly appointments would be uh, me going in to get my prescription and my doctor saying to me, you can't have these meds anymore. And I would beg, I would plead, I threatened, I cried. Um, and he continued to give me the medications because I was just so um, strong-minded and so determined. Mm -hmm. But then the policy was put into place and I got that letter on uh, June 6th that said I could no longer have the medication. Or I should point out to our listeners that in British Columbia, when it comes to opioids, the situation is somewhat different than the rest of the country. It's a 50 milligram a day maximum in B.C. And the guidelines for the country that uh, that Professor... Um, um, I always forget his last name. It was on the show not long ago. The editor of the guidelines from McMaster University. For the rest of the country, it's 90 milligrams. I have to take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk some more with Hillary and what you did. And we'll talk to your husband as well about how your illness affected you and your family and how you fought back the things you've done. We'll come back on The Green Show with Hillary Morton and her husband, Mike. Don't go away. If you're looking for real-life radio, you've come to the right place. This is The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I'm on Twitter at the Roy Green Show. Emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. My uh, blog is the show page on the Chorus Radio Station where you're listening to this program. Just go to the uh, the website of the radio station you're listening to, and you'll find my blog, my comments, the podcasts, and you can uh, listen back and you can download as you choose. Now we're talking with Hillary Morden and her husband Mike Morden, and uh, Hillary's a chronic pain patient, as you've heard, and she's obviously faced some tremendous challenges with doctors and with regulations. And one thing that I said to the Federal Minister of Health during the interview is, remember the Hippocratic Oath, the first line is, first, do no harm. Uh, Mike, how did your wife's illness and pain uh, challenge you and your family? Well, I, uh, in short, I guess the 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 uh, pursuit of of trying to find out what was causing all of this in the beginning was sort of a, a journey that we uh, we got to a place where she could have some decent quality of life under the opiate program, and uh, her doctor and her were working very well together, and uh, as you can see from her story, she got her life back, and uh, I have to say that it was pretty nice for our family to uh, to have a a complete family with some, some measure of quality of life and uh, the ability to function, you know, amid some difficult circumstances. It is so counterintuitive to take somebody off a program that is helping them simply because there's a policy that bureaucrats have decided that they are going to enforce. And they've intimidated physicians to the point, I, I understand now that there are doctors who are going to have their prescri prescribing privileges taken away by, by their colleges 
because mm-hmm. they don't want them to prescribe opioids anymore to patients who desperately need these medications. Hillary, the the, uh, the policy itself, what does it do to the relationship between the patient and the doctor? Well, it takes a previously workable relationship and makes it adversarial. I'm a threat to my doctor because every time I come in every month and he writes a prescription, he does it under the cloud that the college could take his license away, which means, you know, several thousand patients won't get the care that they need. And God knows we're short of doctors in B.C. For the patient, it is traumatizing. It infantilizes the patient. It makes me feel helpless. My privacy is violated by the college with them looking at my personal care, which is the relationship that should be between my doctor and myself. Um, and it, it just it makes it where the monthly visit becomes something that I fear beginning the week ahead. And I experience anxiety and depression frustration, hopelessness. It interferes with my work. It interferes with my teaching, my writing, everything. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, it, it reduces heard the quality of life. I've heard this from different patients. Days before the appointment with the doctor, they yes. become extremely anxious and extremely worried. Now, you decided, though, that you would fight back, and you took a particular position, indeed. a personal position, and you informed the college of what you would do if your medication was withheld, what your choices were and what you would do, and how did they... Re- tell us what, what, what you decided and what the response was. Well, the first thing I did is I got myself a lawyer to sue the college under the Charter of Rights um, section that says I, am, I have a right to live without torture because to take away my medication is to torture me. And the college didn't respond. I emailed them. I wrote them letters. I even went to my MLA and got my MLA to intervene for me, and they would not speak to him. So then I went to my doctor, and I told him flat out, I said, if you take my medication away, I'm going to make you kill me, and then I'm going to have my estate sue you for wrongful death. So I will request assisted suicide. I'm going to make you do it, and then we're going to sue you for it. Um, and I, I, that's how desperate I was. That I, ha- I had no choice. And my doctor then wrote the college, and the college backed off and said he could continue to prescribe the dose that I had been on, um, I guess, in perpetuity, but I don't know. Wow. So, 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 you, anyway. so you, you called them out, and you really, really called them out. <laughs> And they, ba- and they backed and I off. I meant it. I absolutely meant it. I can't, I can't go back and live like that. I can't. And, and they backed off. And, and that, spe- that speaks volumes to how secure they are with the policy that, they're, that, they're, that they've, in, they've put in place, the governments and the college, colleges. And what's happening is I think they've lost control of the conversation now. Yes. They had it their own way for quite a long period of time. And now they have lost control of the conversation. Yet they claim that they instituted the policy to prevent the misuse of prescription narcotics. <laughs> so, I mean, right? Run with that one. Okay. Well, the reality is, is they're creating the street drug epidemic that they claim that they're actually controlling. So this this whole discussion started with the DEA at the end of the so-called crack epidemic 
they turned their, their attention to narcotics, and they went after doctors and pain clinics. And um, they said that there was this epidemic, which there wasn't. And so what happens is when patients are, have their medications removed, they only have a couple of choices. And one of the choices is, of course, they can turn to the streets and get illicit narcotics that are readily available on the street. So the first thing it does is it benefits organized crime through price increases. So Percocet and Oxy at the time that this first started went up to $5 a pill for Percocet and a dollar per milligram for Oxy. So an Oxy 20 was $20, so on and so forth. Um, as, as patients turn to the street, they run out of money. Obviously, they can't afford that. It's very expensive to keep their pain meds up. And the drug dealers will then tell them, we'll just use heroin or fentanyl. It's a lot cheaper. So this, of course, leads to increased numbers of clients uh, for street drugs, increased overdoses, because you've got street drug naive people going to the street, getting drugs, getting what they think is one right. thing, but it's another thing. Right. Um, they don't know about Narcan. They don't have the social systems around them to go after, um, to help them with, like, Narcan when they yeah. So I have, I, I have about two minutes. I have a question here, okay. though, that I wanted to ask you. What happened to the, what did the lawyers say when you, when you, when you wanted to have a charter challenge, that you, you can't be tortured? What, what, because I've, I've heard time and again that the best way to take this to court uh, if it's going to be a class action, it's going to have to be on charter uh, basis. So what did the lawyers yes. say? Well, they were very much for it. They felt very strongly that they'd be able to get me the right to have the medications. They were the company that fought for the right to assisted suicide. But they required an affidavit from my doctor. And my doctor, in fear of the college, would not write an affidavit about my health and about my treatment, that he had treated me this way for, you know, 10, 12 years. Um, and so they were not able to move forward. So um, what we need is we need a test case where the doctor will write that letter, will mm -hmm. write that affidavit, and with that test case, we can then take it to court, and then we can start a class action. Well, I think if, uh, if doctors increasingly are having their prescription privileges removed, you're going to see doctors who will stand up, and you'll also see doctors who are fed up with seeing their patients uh, harmed. And as yes. I said, I've, I've been hearing that uh, some doctors, pain doctors, are reporting sort of internally that uh, increasing numbers of their patients are committing suicide. Um, Hillary, we'll, we'll, we'll talk again for sure. And Mike, thank you very much for joining us as well. All the best to both of you. Thank you so much for having us on. And we'll definitely talk again. Hillary thank Morton you. and her husband Mike on the Roy Green Show on the Corliss Radio Network on the issue of pain meds for chronic pain patients, more like chronic agony patients. And the fight back has, I think it's really taking... Uh, gathering momentum, and the conversation is changing. It's not just one group that is controlling the conversation any longer. When we come back, it's time for Beauties and the Beast with Catherine and Linda. Stay with us.